welcome welcome to the scottsdale big book study where we will study the big book of alcoholics anonymous today's date is saturday september 9 2023 my name is Dottie, and i'm a grateful compulsive ever eater from new jersey i will be your host for today's study our co-hosts are veronica c and maria f if you have any questions during the meeting please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts by private message in the chat function. The chat function will be disabled until five minutes before the questions and answer session. Please note that the speaker Harlan G will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer session which follows will not be re recorded. We ask if you could please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also please turn off your video if you're exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen for any reason. During the meeting, we will post the link to our seven tradition. This money goes toward the cost of our Zoom account, the cost of uploading our recordings, and we also send contributions to our inner group and, and WSO. We will post a link to the previous week recording, week's recordings. These are available by clicking on the link that will be posted in the chat box. And now it is my um appreciate appreciation and gra gratitude to be able to introduce Harlan G. It's all yours, Thank Harlan. You. Thank you very much, Daddy. I really appreciate that. Um I appreciate the service of all the people who make this possible. Uh this is not just a, a Harlan G endeavor. This is an endeavor of a lot of people who uh, maintain the Zoom account, who moderate, who do the questions and answers, who make sure that this the uh, recordings are posted on scottsdalebigbook.com. This is a uh, multi, multi-voiced uh, uh, endeavor, to say the least. Um, I'm very glad to be here today. I'm in Arlington Heights, Illinois. I'm about two minutes from Poop Park, um, and so I'm very glad to be here. And uh, this will be my last weekend here. I'm going to return back to Arizona on Tuesday. So I will be doing this next week from Scottsdale, Arizona, which is my usual uh, place to do it from. But for right now, I'm in Arlington Heights, Illinois, having a great time, freezing my butt off. It's about 70 degrees here today, and it is cold. It is really cold at night. Um, but it's very nice to be here, and I'm glad. Before we get started, I do want to pass along a piece of information. The OA Birthday Committee is headed by a person named Amy. I do not have Amy's contact information with me at all because I cannot access my um, my um, uh, chat, my, not my chat, my uh, text messages while I'm Zooming like this. It just cannot be done. So I do not have her information. However, the OA birthday committee is really starting to get into full swing. They are looking for help. You do not have to live in Los Angeles to help with the birthday. And there are things that need doing in the here and now that people can step forward from other locations to do. So if you have an interest in helping with the OA birthday, which is coming up in January, the 12th, the 13th, and the 14th, you should contact 
um, the LA intergroup. I do not have Amy's information in front of me. Maybe at the end of this, we can give it if maybe Nancy or someone has it, we can give it or they can post it in the chat. That would be great if Nancy could post it in the chat. But there are many things. The OA birthday is a fabulous convention, just fabulous. I always make it a point to get there a couple of days early. And I do not allow my flight to be uh, conflicting with the noon closing time. There's just a lot going on until noon on Sunday. It's the 12th, the 13th, and the 14th of January. And it is well, well worth it to go to this convention. I recommend it five stars out of five. Okay. We have been talking about the chapter, the family afterward. And in this chapter, the presumptive uh, position of the chapter is how to treat someone in your environment who is addicted. And what we do is we, as this is very important, we also look at this chapter as an instruction book on how to understand better, treat more humanely, and do a very good job of treating ourselves. And that will be the posture that I'm going to take. We will look at the, um, the way we handle addicts in our life, but we will also look at how we interact with ourselves. That's very, very important. You know, there's two permanent relationships. By the way, when we get started, we'll be on page 129, uh, the opposite may happen. So we will be on page 129. The opposite may happen. But I just want to talk to you before then, before so you can get to the page and then we'll get started. Um, the bottom line is we have a situation where um, we have a relationship with someone else and we also have a relationship with ourselves. But there's two permanent relationships in any human life the relationship we have with ourselves and the relationship we have with God. Everything and everyone else is transitory. People come, people go, people live, people die, people whatever. And so we may think that house or we have a friend that is a permanent situation, but nothing is permanent in the relationship area of our lives other than the relationship we have with ourselves and the relationship that we have with our higher power that I choose to call God. So let's go to page 129 with that in mind. And let's take a look at this paragraph that begins with the opposite may happen. Okay. The opposite may happen should the family condemn and criticize now, we're going to take a look at this condemn and criticize, and we're going to stick a pin in that, keep it, keep it fresh in your mind, because we're going to come back and talk about that. Dad may feel that for years his drinking has placed him on the wrong side of every argument, and it is something that I experienced in my first marriage. I felt like I was just on the wrong side of every argument. And then it became clear to me that I was not. But what happens is I do an emotional pendulum swing. I went from thinking I was wrong in every situation to where I was right in every situation. And somewhere in the middle is the truth. And sometimes 
what happens is we only see the extremes, remembering always that there's three sides to every story. There's your side, there's my side, and then there's what really happened. So somewhere in the middle of the I'm always right, I'm always wrong, somewhere in the middle lie the truth, lie the reality of that situation. But that now he has become a superior person with God on his side. So just because we are praying and working a program does not mean that we are better than other people. And that must be pounded into our heads by our constant repetition. We are not better than other people. We are just doing something a little different from what they do. If the family persists in criticism, this fallacy may take a greater hold on father. Instead of treating the family as he should, he may retreat further into himself and feel he has spiritual justification for so doing. Now, let's take a look at this and let's take a look at this from the standpoint, not of how we treat father, not of how we treat mother, but of how we interact with ourselves. If we constantly are criticizing ourselves, and I am a very famous self-deprecator. I am a very, I, in the Guinness Book of Records for self-deprecating and self-criticism, I am right at the top of that list. But what happens is I retreat further into myself because I get the efforts I get the screw it's. And so when that happens and I get those efforts, the next thing that comes into my mouth is going to be food. Because what I feel like is what's the use anyway? God is going to screw me over. I'm going to screw me over. The world is going to screw me over. So I might as well eat. And what this is for me is a beautiful excuse. It's a fabulous excuse to go out and eat half of North America because the bottom line is for me, I have to work a little harder every day at maintaining a positive attitude. I have to work a little harder. Now, how do I do that specifically? What do I do specifically to maintain a positive attitude? Well, the first thing I have to do every single day, I do it in the morning and I do it at night. I make it part of my daily routine. What am I grateful for today? And at the end of every day, not only do I recap what I'm grateful for, but what did I see today that was beautiful? Now that's not in the big book. I am sharing with you what I do. Every single morning I get up and I thank God for arms and legs. I thank God for my health. I thank God for the fact that I can see and I can hear and I can read and I can do everything except math. I can't do math, but no, I can think and I have a brain and I have a skill and I can make a living and my bills are paid and I have a car and I have a house. Now, these things are not things everyone might have but I have them and nobody gave me anything except guidance from God. 
God gave me everything that I've ever had in my life. So I also have something to be really, really grateful for. And that is I'm in Arlington Heights, Illinois, because of a wonderful, wonderful reason. And it's a reason that I just can't even thank God enough for. I'm here to see someone that I'm wild about. And so that's why I'm here in Arlington Heights, Illinois. And that is a gift in my life, to say the least. But the bottom line is still this. Every single day, I also have to take time at the end of the day. And not only do I do another gratitude, but I also want to say, what did I see today that was beautiful? Or what did I witness today that was beautiful? I also do some other things that help me not to be so hideously critical of myself. And that is, I stay out of the food. When I overeat, when I indulge in food that is not on my food plan, there are a few things that happen. There's the physical allergy that I trigger. Yes, to be sure. There is the weight that I gain. Yes. There's the inevitable gas passing. Yes. There is sometimes all kinds of in, uh, intestinal distress. No question about it. But there's also something else that happens every single time. Yes, every single time. I'm going to say it again. Every single time that I overeat, I get more and more irritated, irritable, critical of others, self-isolating. I do not want to be around people. I do not want anybody to see me. I do not want anybody to be around me. And it becomes a very difficult situation to maintain any sort of equilibrium in my life because when I compulsively overeat, I feel very negative about myself. I am, as Dr. Silkworth says, restless, irritable, and discontented. And when I am restless, irritable, and discontented, I do not interact well with the rest of the world. I interact well only with Butterfinger bars, Baby Ruth bars, Baby Ruths are 100 times better than Payday. Payday doesn't have the chocolate on it. Why would somebody buy a Payday when you can get a Baby Ruth? What the heck is wrong with these people? But those are the only situations where I can interact with anybody that if you're a chocolate bar, I can interact with you. If you're not, I really can't. So food changes everything and abstinence changes everything. When I'm eating, I'm a different person. When I'm not eating, I'm a different person. I like the person I am when I'm not eating a lot better than the person I am when I am eating. And food never did as much for me in the long run as abstinence did. Abstinence gave me everything in my life. Abstinence gave me a life. It gave me the most wonderful God-given fellowship that anyone ever experienced. It gave me every miracle I've ever had in my entire life. And food never did anything positive for me, except give me about nine seconds of respite from the emotional turmoil that I call life on life's terms. 
So when I'm eating, I do not feel an incredible amount of pain because I'm anesthetized when I when I am eating, sorry. When I'm not eating, I feel a thousand times better than that could ever give me. Not eating gives me more than eating. But when I stay out of the food with God's help, by the grace of God and the fellowship of this program, and I am working steps, and there's one other ingredient that I have to do so that I can not only stay out of the food, but I can stay out of the serious um, self-criticism, self-condemnation, self-hatred, because this is a disease of self-loathing. <clears throat> this is a disease <clears throat> where we hate ourselves. What is it that I can do to help me like me and like my fellow person more? I can get out of myself and be of service. Now, it's very hard for me to be of service if I'm in the food. I really don't have anything to give. So the prerequisite for the service that really helps me is staying out of the food. That is a very, very important part of the equation that helps me live a life where I do not want to die. And so the bottom line is I want to live a lot more than I want to die. Whereas for decades of my life, I begged God for death because death had to be better than that constant, constant self-condemnation, that constant guilt and shame and remorse and fear and isolation that the food brings in. And as a, what I used to say to myself is, Anything is better than this. And I used to say, how bad can death be, really? Well, I'm very, very glad to be alive today. That is for sure. And as a person who is alive, I am 69 years old. I want to do everything I can possibly do to maximize the amount of time that I have left. I do not want to waste a minute. I gave this disease decades and decades of my life, my money, my efforts. I paid a very hefty price to be where I am today in terms of an emotional and physical cost. I, I paid my dues with the food. Now I want to enjoy, I want to reap the benefits of the recovery. And this is the sweetest, most wonderful way of life imaginable. This is the easier, softer way. This is the best way of life that I have ever known. I have many friends of mine that are in the Chicagoland area as we speak, because the high school that I went to, the year behind me, the class of 1973 is enjoying tonight their 50th reunion. Well, I am not part of that class, but I know a lot of them that are. And so I, you know, a lot of these people are my friends and so on. And I see some of them that were very, very successful financially and so on. And that's great. But I really seriously, I, I, I want to be successful financially. And there's, you know, parts of me that does get a little jealous, a little envious at times. But when the when the weed is cut from the chaff, here's what I know. I am plugged in to the absolute greatest way of life imaginable when I work this program in abstinence 
I have a way of living on which I can absolutely rely that is the greatest way of life under the sun. And that is the working of the 12 steps. Let's go to the bottom of 129. Though the family, I'm at the last paragraph of 129. Though the family does not fully agree with dad's spiritual activities, they should let him have his head. What does that mean? Let him have his head? What it means is let him do his thing. In other words, if it was said today, they would say, let dad do his thing. That's what that means. Let him have his head means let him do his thing. Even if he displays a certain amount of neglect and irresponsibility towards the family, it is well to let him go as far as he likes in helping other alcoholics. During those first days of convalescence, this will do more to ensure his sobriety than anything else. Let's stop right there. If you love somebody, you support their recovery. And I get this phone call a lot. I don't get it every day. I don't get it every week. I don't get it. But I get this a lot. I get this from men and women. It comes like this. I want to work my program, but he or she does not want me going to meetings, does not want me doing what I need to do. If you love somebody, you love them when they are doing things for themselves, not just when they're doing things for you. When they are doing things for themselves, they become stronger and better. And the best relationships are between two people who are independent rather than dependent. So when you love somebody, it's important to encourage them to reach higher. Now, what about... I just said at the very beginning about how we're going to translate this or look at this from the vantage point of you or I doing what is best for us. How does that translate out? Well, it translates out thusly. If I love myself and I purport to love God and I believe that God would want me to recover, then the way to show my appreciation to God and the way to be my own second best friend, because my best friend will always be God, always, but my second best friend is me. So if I'm my own second best friend, the way that I can feel good about myself and the way I can please God and others and earn their respect is to work my program against all odds. Once again, I'm not here to mix into your domestic situations, but if you really love somebody, you want them to be the best them that they can be in the one life we have. And anything or anybody that tells me anything to the contrary is really incorrect, in my opinion. The best thing I can do to honor my parents the best thing I can do to be half of a relationship that hopefully will be for the rest of my life. If the best thing I can do to please God, to please myself, to honor my folks, to honor the people who have made my life possible is to recover, recover, and recover. There is no advantage for me to go to less meetings, 
There is no advantage for me to do less step work. There is no advantage to me to do less for my recovery. The more I, within, you know, within reason, I am here to visit someone, as I said, that I'm nuts about. So if it comes down to it, we go here, we go there, we do things together, but I can do both. It doesn't have to be an either or. I can, it doesn't have to be, well, you can socialize or you can go to meetings. I go to vision for two hours every morning, very early in the morning. Uh, I, I do what I need to do. I make and take outreach calls. I contact my sponsors. I do the things that I need to do for my recovery. Very, very important that I do the things that are for my recovery. Very bottom of 129, the last word of 129, though some of his manifestations are alarming and disagreeable, that's a matter of opinion and vantage point paradigm, uh, perspective rather, we think dad will be on a firmer foundation than the man who is placing business or professional success ahead of spiritual development. He will be less likely to drink again, and anything is preferable to that. I would rather have you in recovery and sacrifice a couple of evenings here and a couple of evenings there and whatever that may entail. I would much rather have myself or you in recovery than not in recovery and have you all to myself drifting down into the mire, the muck of the food. The muck and mire of this disease is beckoning like the sirens calling the sailors to the rocks so that they will dash their, their ships. The muck and filth of this disease, the putrid filth of this disease is very alluring. The disease knows just how to talk to me. The disease knows just how to seduce me. The disease knows exactly what to say to me to get me thinking that I'm in Chicago and man, there's all kinds of pizza here and there's all kinds of all kinds of food here that you can probably get it in Arizona, but being in Chicago is just a perfect, perfect excuse to overeat. And I have used that on thousands of occasions. I'm not going to use it today. Didn't use it yesterday. Won't use it today. May not use it tomorrow. I don't know till tomorrow gets here. But what I need to do is remember that if I don't drink or don't eat, anything is preferable to being in the food. Very, very important. I'm at the top of 130. Those of us who have spent much time in the world of spiritual make-believe may eventually have eventually seen the childishness, childish, childishness of it. Sorry, I knew I'd get it out eventually. I'm having a bad morning. I don't know why. This dream world has been replaced by a great sense of purpose accompanied by a growing consciousness of the power of God in our lives. Notice it says a growing consciousness of, of power of God in our lives because this is something that is constantly being revealed. We have come to believe he would like us to keep our heads in the clouds with him, but that our feet ought to be firmly planted on earth. That is where our fellow travelers are, and that is where our work must be done. These are the realities for us. 
we have found nothing incompatible between a powerful spiritual experience and a life of sane, happy usefulness. I work every day toward a spiritual awakening. I have a business. I have a, uh, I have a life. I have friends in OA. I have friends not in OA. I have, I am, I am part of a couple. I am part of a couple that I hope will be forever. Whatever that you know, whatever God has in store, but I hope it will be. And the bottom line is, everything about those things, everything about those things is not detracted from by program. It is enhanced by program. It is, it is absolutely enhanced by my program. Now, one more suggestion. We're on 130 toward the bottom of the page. Whether the family has spiritual convictions or not, they may do well to examine the principles. What are the principles? The principles are the steps. You hear a lot of people, they get on the line and they say, oh, the principle of this is this and the principle of that is that and it's hope and it's this and it's truth. Those are things that came along decades after Bill and Bob were dead. The principles that they're talking about are the steps. They are synonymous. But Bill doesn't want to keep using the same word again and again. You know, you know, you know, you know. So he uses the word principles and steps, just like he uses shortcomings and defects interchangeably. They mean the same thing by which the alcoholic member is trying to live. They can hardly fail to approve these simple principles through, though the head of the house still fails somewhat in practicing them, nothing will help the man who is off on a spiritual tangent so much as the wife who adopts a sane spiritual program, making better practical use of it. Now, that's fine, but let's say you're in a situation where the significant other or the per people, person in your life is not going to adapt to a spiritual program. They're not going to do those things. You do them anyway. You do them anyway, because when the meat is cut from the bone, it is your relationship with God that's going to make you or break you. If you are a compulsive overeater, eventually, if you work these steps, you can live a life of sane and happy usefulness. If you do not work these steps, it is not a question of if you're going to go back into the food. It is a question of when you're going to go back into the food. You will not escape the food. You will not escape the idea that food is a step up from where you are if you do not work these steps. That is not going to happen. It is not a possibility. So you have to keep working the steps no matter who is around you that detracts from that, no matter who around you criticizes that, you stay the course. God will protect you. God will protect you. Bottom of 130, there will be other profound changes in the household. Let's stop right there. I was having a conversation this morning and the conversation went something like this. When you got abstinent, did your sense of smell change? And I said, yes, it did. Yes. But here's what changes in recovery. Just about everything. 
Here's what changes when you're in the food, just about everything. So the food and abstinence has a changing effect, a metamorphosis effect, a developmental effect on the human being. Being in the food changes everything about your mentality. Being out of the food changes everything about your mentality. And I believe that it is not possible. It is not possible for me. I'm not talking about you. I'm not talking about someone else. It is not possible for me to maintain a healthy, viable relationship with God while I am in the food. It just cannot happen. The food just amputates me from any truth, from any communication that I would need with God. It just, it just amputates it. I cannot do it. And when I feel horrible about my body and I feel horrible about what I've done and I'm farting constantly and I'm crapping in my pants and I'm ashamed of where I've been and I'm ashamed of what I've done and I'm just dying, just dying on the inside to get at more food and I'm listening to you and the words you're saying sound like like Charlie Brown's teacher. I cannot wait to get away from you so I can get my hands on the food. This is not a situation where I can really go to God very effectively. It's just not. <clears throat> Liquor incapacitated father for so many years that mother became head of the house. She met these responsibilities gallantly. By force of circumstance, she was often obliged to treat father as a sick or wayward child. Even when he wanted to assert himself, he could not, for his drinking placed him constantly in the wrong. Mother made all the plans and gave the directions. When sober, father usually obeyed. Thus, mother, through no fault of her own, became accustomed to wearing the family trousers. Father, coming suddenly to life again, often begins to assert himself. This means trouble unless the family watches for these tendencies in each other and comes to a friendly agreement about them. Now, let's take a look at what we see and what we just read is when you're in the food, you're drunk on the food, somebody else is going to make all these decisions. What happens when that happens? What happens is you start to deeply resent this other person. You feel like I did in my marriage. When I was in my marriage, I was married for 17 and a half years. We were together 18 and a half years. And I let her make every single decision, not because I'm such a gallant gentleman, not because I'm such a wonderful dude, far from it. What I did was I wanted to escape responsibility of any type of decision that I could make. Because if I made no decisions, nothing could come back on me. And I felt like if she couldn't blame me for something, she wouldn't leave me. Well, I've been divorced now since 2010. And in August of this year, I have been divorced for 13 years. And I thought that getting divorced was the absolute worst thing that ever happened to me. I thought it was horrible. I was just so despondent in the aftermath of that divorce while we were going through it. It was just a nightmare. Well, 
uh, if things could have been shown to me then, uh, I might have known it then. But today, I think being divorced is the best thing that ever happened to me, because if I wasn't divorced, then I wouldn't have met the current person that I'm just absolutely crazy about. And I would have I would have missed out on this person. But getting back to the book here, getting back to the book and 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 divorce is ugly. It is horrible for me, for me to have gone through. It was very difficult. But anyway, getting back to this, when I let other people make all the decisions, I will inwardly resent them. And this buildup of that emotion, this buildup of that anger, this buildup. See, that's a manipulation tactic, letting someone else make all the decisions and letting someone else control every situation. That's a manipulation tactic. That is coming from the desperate side of life that says, I'll do anything you want, just don't leave me. And quite the opposite is true when it comes to a relationship. Now, I'm no relationship expert. I'm certainly not someone that is worthy of your relationship questions or, or, or anything like that. But here is what I have learned. Love and respect are Siamese twins, and they cannot be separated. So if you don't respect me, you cannot love me. If I don't respect you, I cannot love you. So let's take that personal. Let's take that and personalize it because what I said to you was this. I said, we're going to look at this chapter, not just from the standpoint of the family. We are going to look at this chapter from the standpoint of the relationship that we have with ourselves. If I am constantly doing things or abdicating responsibility, abdicating my humanity, I cannot respect me for very long. I will think of myself as a piece of garbage because if I am constantly putting myself out there as a doormat for you, as a shmata for you, a shmata is a rag. But it's really a Yiddish expression that if you're someone shmate, you're like their welcome mat. They wipe their feet on you, they use you, and that's it. Well, I if I'm going to be a shmate for someone else, I am not going to respect myself. If I don't respect myself, I can't love myself. If I can't love myself, I am going to seek solace in food. I am going to be at the door of the grocery store when it opens because I cannot go another second without Oreo cookies. I cannot go another second without candy. I cannot go another second without God knows what. And every candy bar within five miles of me is going to be trembling on the shelf knowing that its life expectancy has dwindled to seconds. And so when we abdicate responsibility, we lose, we lose respect for ourselves. And if love and respect are Siamese twins that cannot be separated, once we lose that respect for self, we lose the love of self. Once we lose the love of self, we become hopeless. We become helpless. We become negative. We get amnesia. We forget that the world is a beautiful place. We forget 
that we have been given blessings and we see the world in a bleak, negative fall of food. And once that takes place in the psyche of a compulsive overeater, they are going to eat. Everything that we're doing, outreach calls, meetings, sponsorship, working the steps, everything that we're doing is to beat back the negative effect of the demonic ego. We are beating back the effect of that demonic ego. And once we do that, once we beat that back, we are now able to live in the sunshine, the sunlight of the spirit, and we can live in God's world. But it starts with remembering that every single day is a day when I have to take action after action after action so that I don't end up hating myself hating God because the food will be right behind there. There's a train, picture a train. The engine is, I hate God. The next car is, I hate myself. And in the next car is a car loaded to the guttles with Doritos, with French fries, with whatever you like. That's that train. Love and respect our Siamese twins, they cannot be separated. Let's move on. 131, drinking isolates most homes from the outside world. Eating isolates compulsive overeaters from the outside world. We are ashamed. We are afraid. We are angry. And the more we isolate, the more we hate ourselves. The more we hate ourselves, the more we eat. The more we eat, the more weight we gain. The more weight we gain, the more we hate ourselves. And it's a vicious cycle of not wanting to see people. You see, I've said this before. I'm going to say it again this morning. The disease is a perfect abuser. And if you are in a situation of domestic abuse, I feel horrible for you, but what do all abusers have in common? The first thing they do is they isolate you from friends and family and support. They isolate you and try to convince you that they are the air you breathe, they are the water you drink, they are your source of life. They isolate you from your support system. And once you are isolated, once you are isolated, you have a very different life. And what it says here, father may have laid aside for years all normal activities, clubs, civic duties, sports. When he renews interest in such things, a feeling of jealousy may arise. That's from the other family members. The family may feel they hold a mortgage on dad so big that no equity should be left for outsiders. Instead of developing new channels of activity for themselves, mother and children demand that he stay home and make up the deficiency. That is an unhealthy posture for yourself. And that is an unhealthy posture for how we view the world or family or friends. Go out and live your life. If you've heard me say this once, you've heard me say this 500 times. Do not live to recover. Recover to live. God did not put us on this earth 
to be a meeting-making abstinence machine. Meetings are important. Abstinence is important, but only to the to the end, only to the product of go out and live your life. Go have fun. Go to the show. Go socialize. Go and do. You don't have to dance at every wedding. You don't have to be at every meeting. I'm not encouraging you not to go to meetings. I'm not encouraging you not to work your program. But in everything we do, there must be balance. Balance. You see, for years, all I could do really was go to meetings. I had no life. My friends were getting married and starting families. It doesn't include a single man. A single man doesn't really belong in a bunch of married people that are having children, that are having marital difficulties, the ups and downs. It doesn't include a man who's never dated and doesn't, doesn't relate to any of this. So it becomes very, very isolating. But you do not live to recover. You recover to live. Go out and live your life. Nobody has a guarantee. There are no contracts. We don't know how much time we have. We just don't. Nobody has a contract. You know, I have an idea in my head. I'm going to live X amount more years. I might drop dead today. How the heck do I know? I could get hit by a bus. I could get hit God knows what. Who knows? The obituary column is not filled with people that died knowing when they were going to die. It happens. Shit happens. Go live your life. And that does not mean go eat the house. Doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean get food in your stomach because you might die. No, it means quite the opposite. Recover, recover, and recover, and go live your life to the fullest. At the very beginning, I'm on 131. At the very beginning, the couple ought to frankly face the fact that each will have to yield here and there if the family is going to play an effective part in the new life. Father will necessarily spend much time with other alcoholics, but this activity should be balanced. Again, the word is balanced. New acquaintances who know nothing of alcoholism might be made and thoughtful consideration given their needs. The problems of the community might engage attention. Though the family has no religious connections, they may wish to make contact with or take membership in a religious body. That's something that is up to you to decide. Bottom of 131. Alcoholics who have derided religious people will be helped by such contacts. Being possessed of a spiritual experience, the alcoholic will find he has much in common with these people, though he may differ with them on many matters. If he does not argue about religion, he will make new friends and is sure to find new avenues of usefulness and pleasure. And this is very, very important, is to find new avenues of usefulness and pleasure. Now, I don't mean eating. He and his family can be a bright spot in such 
<clears throat> sorry, such congregations. He may bring new hope and give new courage to many a priest, minister, or rabbi who gives his all to minister to our troubled world. You have something that a lot of people do not have. You speak and understand the language of the heart. You have suffered. You have been beat down by this disease. It means that you have a perspective of mercy and a perspective of love for the underdog and a real love of people that a lot of other people have too, but some cannot, some do not. We intend the foregoing as a helpful suggestion only. So far as we are concerned, there is nothing obligatory about it. As non-denominational people, we cannot make up others' minds for them. Each individual should consult his own conscience. Now, this next paragraph is a paragraph that I read every day. And I ponder on this paragraph every single day. It is one of the paragraphs that I attend to every morning. We have been speaking to you of serious, sometimes tragic things. We have been dealing with alcohol in its worst aspect, but we aren't a glum lot. If newcomers could see no joy or fun in our existence, they wouldn't want it. We absolutely insist on enjoying life. Now I'm gonna stop right there for just a second. And I wanna to talk to you about what we've just read. You have been through hell in a handbasket. You are like the survivors of the famous ship Titanic. The only ones who really know what it was like to be on that ship the night in April of 1912, 1913, something like that, uh, are them. The only ones who understand how cold the water is in the North Atlantic on that very, very cold, frigid day 110 years ago is them. And the only ones who know what it was like when the Carpathia came by to rescue the people that were rescued are the people that got rescued. You alone know what it is like to have this disease. And you have been through traumatic, nightmarish experiences or you wouldn't be here. We have been dealing with alcohol in its worst aspect, but we aren't a glum lot. Come to the OA birthday in Los Angeles on the 12th, the 13th, and the 14th of January and listen to the laughter. Listen to the chatter in the lobby of that hotel as we pass from thing to thing at the end of each hour. Watch the faces of the people. Many will be laughing and hugging and crying for joy and having fun. And they won't be doing it with food. They won't be recreating with a sandwich in their hands. They will be recreating with their fellow human being, sufferer and God. We are not a glum lot. If newcomers could see no joy or fun in our existence, they wouldn't want it. I have been to many, many retreats. I have been to retreats from Jerusalem, Israel, to Anchorage, Alaska, from Boston, Massachusetts, to San Diego, California, 
from Seattle and Tacoma, Washington, down to uh, Pompano Beach, Florida. I have crisscrossed this country many times. I have done retreats in 38 of our states, 38 states. I have been on airplanes many times. It is an amazing thing because I don't know most of the people when I go to these retreats. You guys know each other, but I don't know each other. Uh, I remember many of them, the laughter and the joy. And you think to yourself, how can these people be so happy? Well, it's only possible through God. It's only possible through recovery. We absolutely insist on enjoying life. We try not to indulge in cynicism over the state of the nations. I had a woman call me the morning after the presidential election of 2016, 2016, I think. Anyway, the last one. And this is a person who told me they were going back in the food. They were going to deliberately go back in the food. And the reason that they were going back in the food is because they felt that if there was a God, then this person who won the presidency would never have won. And the last time I heard from this person, she told me she was over 400 pounds. Who did you hurt? What are you going to do for the war? What are you going to do about starving kids in Africa, China, Mongolia, whatever? What are you going to do about all these things? Well, if you're me, you remember that there's three things I can do about any of it. Recover, recover, and recover. I'll be damned if I'm going to let Hitler kill another Jew in me in the food. And I get this every day. Not every day. I get this all the time. I can't believe in God because of the Holocaust. I can't believe in God because of chattel slavery. I can't believe in God because this guy's the president or this guy's the senator or the governor. Really? Is this the hill you want to die on? Is this the hill you want to die on? Because what does it say here? Nor do we carry the world's troubles on our shoulders. If you try to carry the world on your shoulders, you'll be sunk by them. How is it? You walk me through this. Call me. Call me and walk me through how me eating French fries is going to save one person from the Holocaust. And if you can convince me of that, I'll eat French fries. Really? Is this the hill I want to die on? The Holocaust? It was the greatest crime against humanity in the history of the world. How is me eating O. Henry bars going to solve that problem? If I thought that I could bring back one woman, child, man, from the gas chamber, I would eat my head off today and trade places with them. But it's not going to do that, is it? When we see a man sinking into the mire, it's not a reason to eat. It's an excuse. When we see a man sinking into the mire that is alcoholism, we give him first aid and place what we have at his disposal. 
And you are the only ones qualified to do that because you speak and understand the language of the heart. A layman cannot put this at someone's disposal. They cannot recount and almost relive the horrors of their past, but you can. And what are they seeking? Are they seeking information? Hardly. They are seeking identification. And if they get identification, then you can be very, very effective. Very effective. And the situation as such is that you can save lives because of your horror. But those of us who try to shoulder the entire burden and trouble of others find we are soon overcome by them. That's why it's so tempting to become alanonic. If I can focus on your eating, your drinking, your drugging, your whoring, your malfeasance, your character defects, I don't have to look at me. I, and if I don't have to look at me, anything is better than that. So the bottom line is the temptation to look at others comes from the reluctance that we have to look at ourselves. That's because it is so much easier to hold up the magnifying glass than it is the, excuse me, hold up the, yeah, the magnifying glass rather than the mirror. Rather than the mirror, because the mirror will reveal things that we now have to work on. And I sure as hell don't want to work on anything. I would rather look at you. Small, mind, small minds talk about others. Big minds talk about things, issues. Small minds talk about other people, right? You've heard that expression? Very, very uh, true. Very true. And that's why when you go to the grocery store and you see all the magazines and all the, the books and the magazines and all about this celebrity and that celebrity, why does that sell so well? Why is that so alluring to us? The reason that it's so alluring to us is it is recreational to look at others. Oh, look how stupid she is. Look how dumb she is. Oh, she married so-and-so. Oh, they only stayed married four minutes. Oh, they, they got divorced on their way home from the honeymoon. And they did this and they did. Why is that so alluring? Well, the reason that it's so alluring is now I don't have to look at myself. So we're going to come to an end and we're going to pick this up next week, next Saturday at the same time. I will be back in Arizona at that time. And we're going to do this again next week. But before we turn this back over to Nancy or Marie,